Hi, welcome to Chicana Code Switchers. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicanas in our master's program. We are also scholar practitioners in student affairs. This podcast is intended to provide insights into higher education with a focus on social justice and pláticas of student experiences. With that being said, let's start the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome. It's another uh, episode of Chicana Code Switchers, episode three, and I'm really excited to join you all today with my colleague, Patricia. Patricia, can you say hello? Hey. Hello, hello. So um, we're just really excited this week um, to do this podcast. Um, We have a special guest today that we'll introduce in a little bit. But first of all, we would like to start with check-ins and um, just check-ins about our week, how we're doing. Um, and then we'll introduce our special guests. So, Patricia, would you start? Yes. So, um, this week has been a lot of workload um, is piling up, especially how it's like almost midterm season somewhat. And so, um, work is like a lot of students are coming into appointments. So, it's like trying to balance all the responsibilities. But um, what I was really excited about um, this week is that Evie Queen released her new uh, <laughs> song, Yo Quiero Bailar, from like, it's a, a, uh, like a remake uh, from Quiero Bailar, which is like, I've been like listening to it in like my workout. It's giving, mm. giving me life. So I love it. Perreo Intenso all the way. And so um, this week, I actually went to this really great training uh, for work. And it was uh, talking about like, it was a train. It's a culturally competency training about um, working with culturally deaf students, staff, and uh, faculty. It was super great. So the thing that I learned was like this, like half-empty perspective of like the medical view about disabilities, and how much like all the full cannots of what culturally deaf individuals have to experience. So it was really cool to see like the cultural view of like um, viewing uh, this experience and these individuals with like abilities and the world of possibilities of what they can actually do. So it was really awesome um, just because um, what I've learned from there was like that people um, normally when they do come across someone who's culturally deaf, it's actually um, because their children are. And so like Mm -hmm. the amount of people who don't do um, or know American sign language or like, how do you, um, Uh, accommodate and modify a lot of these things and it's sad because usually staff and advisors are the first uh, time that if you're encountering a culturally deaf student um, you end up like either helping them or not like you're the first one that they know about like different resources that they can do along with everything that you know your first year of college happens is that you're trying to learn who you are and so it's, it was amazing. I learned a lot of tools and skills. And I also went to the safe, safe zone training. So um, I watched the screening of A Road to Home, and it followed um, six LGBTQ homeless youth in New York mm. City. It was pretty um, heartbreaking um, because um, a lot of them were kicked out by their um, homophobic and transphobic, transphobic parents. And so um, it was inspiring, all uh, like seeing their story and how each one of them was trying to like either go back to school or finish school and like um, everything that they had to do just to like exist 
And so um, these two trainings both like just um, brought a lot of things about like how much um, this world isn't accepting and like how important it is to like feel safe to be yourself and how empowering it is when others like like allow you to be like that to be yourself and so um I also like was reading this amazing book I highly recommend it um for anyone during the summer reading it goes really fast it's a really short book it's called um you have the right to remain fat by Virgie Tovar it's amazing. It talks a lot about dieting, um, the, the way people control what they eat and not of not just like of their of like what they eat, but there's like also what other people have. And this like and talks a lot about like the sexism and fat phobia that people like like put on to other people. And so it really brought a lot about like a lot of memories and reflection about what it was for me growing up with like being fat and like one of my nicknames growing up was like gordis from like one of my um, uncles and so it just brought a lot of things like I've felt a lot more of those like fat phobic um, things in my life through like what every time I would go visit Mexico and so my family like the whole conversation about like El maldito que dirán, you know, like from families about like the way that they control how much you eat and like, and it all happened with like my tias. So it was like really interesting just reflecting my experience and like how much like everyone's like, oh, te vas a comer like more than like four tacos, like, you know, like three is just the acceptable like amount and just like how much like I felt ashamed of like my big thighs and stuff like that. So it's just like bringing back a lot about like, um, fatness and how much um my tias would just control a lot about like even their own children like doing juice cleansing and like like extreme dieting and exercise and all these things and it's just like everything and especially since I would go during the holidays it was a lot about everyone saying like how much they can't eat and all these like new year resolutions about being thin and like you know all these things and I think one of like the the times I think two years ago um, I had a comadre that my mom and like come up to me and was like she grabbed one of my long hands and was like oh mira que bien comes I was like what the like after going to college and like going through like like uh, taking ethnic studies courses and all these things and like just being an intersectional feminist I was like what the fuck like that was an invasion of my like like how do you think like it's just like so normalized to them that this is okay to do but for me I was like that was an invasion of my space that was like unlike necessary comments like que te importa you know like of like what I do and like you know healthy doesn't mean skinny or thin you know like and that's the thing that I was just like wow and so I mean it doesn't help that I have like a really skinny like older sister and like cousin so like being the browner the thicker family member it really brings a lot of like all these like things about control and so two years ago I decided that you know talking about intuitive eating and building a healthier relationship with food um, has been like a theme right now without like my life and so this book really brought a lot of greatness so I highly recommend people to like um, listen to it which paired really well with 
this week's Ansal Doing It podcast release on the Pancita Diaries part two. Highly recommend mm. uh, listening <laughs> to them. And they talked a lot about like intuitive eating and also remembering your inner bad bitch um, from mm. last week's episode. I think it was like really like I was just like, what the fuck happened with me? Which was like I was so um, getting used to what grad school was for me that I forgot to like remember the bad bitch I was. I was and I am and I continue to will be um, and having a there are two femtors, you know, remind us about who we are and the things mm-hmm. that we have done and accomplished. Mm-hmm. So those are that has been my whole week. Um, so, Adriana, <laughs> tell us about what your week has been. Yeah, yeah. Um, my week has been super busy. Um, I think um, a lot of it revolves around that spring break is coming up for us next the week after next week uh the week after this coming week and so um trying to get as many meetings arranged and conversations and setting down uh details for the events that I'm planning in April really um uh basically planning those details out because people are starting to ask questions about like what's my role what am I gonna what is expected of me to do for like the event with Dr. Cornell West and like trying to uh, bring 21 Savage and having those phone calls things like that that just had to accommodate and uh, plus my classes and plus um, just having some self-care for myself talking about you know, um, just healthy diets and healthy um, practices I've been I've been really I'm really proud that I've been going to the gym almost every day um, I try to go every day and then when there's a day that I, I can't go for whatever reason then I don't feel bad uh, for missing um, but it's just like trying to build some sort of balance with my life like schoolwork, my readings my work and just um, doing that and, and maintaining it like so that it's sustainable um, has been like uh, something that I'm really um, something that I practiced this, these these past two months this past week it seemed to like really flow well and it has a positive influence on my own like like um, like state of mind and just like it helps me cope and it helps me then come back re-energized so it's just like it's all it'll it's all interconnected and I'm really excited that I've been able to do that thus far um and then just excited for what's to come for the remainder of the semester just like continuing to see the developments of things so I'm really excited about what what will end up happening (laughs) Um, and so now that we have introduced our, um, done our check-ins and like shared a little bit about what we're doing and excited about, I would like to introduce uh, our guest. It's um, it's a great pleasure to have here um, the one and only Derek Pagan. Um, he's an EDM candidate at the Harvard Graduate School of Education with a focus in higher education. So he's in my co- part of my cohort. Um, but Derek, would you like to say a few say a little bit about who you are? Yes. Hello, everyone, and thank you, ladies, for having me. Very excited to be here. Um, well, I don't know, I guess we can start at the beginning, kind of. Um, <laughs> I'm majorly from New Haven, Connecticut. I spent some time elsewhere, but, you know, we can get into that later. Um, I've been in, working in New York City for the past four years. In terms of, like, my academics, so I started public school in New Haven, Connecticut, and I was there... 
for the majority of my K through 12 experience, I did spend three years in Puerto Rico. So as Puerto Ricans do, like we moved back to the island a couple <laughs> of times. Um, and I was actually in Tabaja, Puerto Rico from sixth grade to eighth grade. And then I came back over to Connecticut for um, ninth grade to commence high school. After high school, I attended the University of Connecticut and I studied political science and earned my BA. Immediately after graduating, mm -hmm. I moved to New York City to teach. So I was teaching eighth grade English language arts and I was also enrolled at NYU getting my master's in the art of teaching. However, one year into that and one year into teaching, I realized that I did not want to be a teacher anymore. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what my life was going to be, but I knew that it wasn't going to be in the classroom and, you know, that, that moment in time. So I stopped teaching and I actually dropped out of NYU. Mm -hmm. And after I stopped teaching and dropped out, I started working at a charter school, but in a different capacity. I worked at the network office for a very large charter organization in New York City, um, and my team coordinated the affairs of an internal master's program that we had, and also advised all of the students attending the master's program on their New York State teaching certificates. Mm -hmm. After that, so funny enough, a year into that, mm -hmm. the CEO of the charter organization actually discontinued the partnership with the college that we partnered with to get our teacher's master's degrees and have them certified. So I decided to take my talents elsewhere. I got a job <laughs> at a grad school that trained teachers. So basically what they do is they teach teachers how to teach their um, children. And they're trying, they, like their whole marketing ploy is that they're less so pedagogical based and more so like actual skills based in terms of like their practical. So they teach teachers the skills that they have identified as being necessary to be effective in the urban environments which they teach. So I did operations for them for a year, as well as advising students on their New York State teaching certificates. And then I transitioned into a more student advisement capacity. Mm -hmm. So I worked much more with like anomalous students, like advising them if, you, if they were having academic difficulties, needed to take like a leave for whatever reason. I also worked with credit deficient students to get them up to, you know, the level that they needed to be in order to become certified teachers in New York State. And yeah, so I left that position in August and I began my studies and now I'm at Harvard. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Como si nada. Yeah, no nada grande. <laughs> Así de fácil. <laughs> um, my pronouns, um, they are he, him, she, Miss Thing, whatever you want. I honestly reject gender as a construct mm. entirely, but I respect anybody's pronouns. Mm. It's not for me. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing, Derek. Um, I really appreciate that we uh, we have become the first uh, podcast to host you. I think you're in great demand, but you haven't been uh, a, a guest on any podcast. So I'm really excited that you have joined us today. And so just like we have shared, Patricia and I have shared about what we have done that, this far um, this week or and what we're excited about, if any of those things apply to you and you'd like to share, um, we welcome that. Yeah, I actually do have something to share. I honestly live, like, a pretty, like, intentionally chill life. I feel like every day should be a self-care day. 
but I actually did something productive this week. I got I'm taking a class on state and federal policy making and post secondary education. So we actually got the opportunity to attend an academic affairs committee meeting at the Board of Education and see like the actual board, like the Secretary of Education was there and be a part of them actually like striking down policy, voting on policy, giving curriculum feedback to various institutions that came to try to have their um, academic programs approved. So I, it was just really enriching to see like what the conversations were the demographics of the people who were having those conversations who actually sat on the chair. Um, there were no people of color. Like some chair members were absent, but you know, couldn't help but notice. So were um, you the only one? Um, no, so there was, an, someone in attendance was a person of color. They were a representative from one of the schools, but that, that was it in a room full of white people. Um, so that that's just interesting just because they, they were voting on policy for like, the entire state of Massachusetts. So I don't think that was necessarily indicative of the demographics of the state. But again, it was just like nice to see that from my own eyes and see like what is going on in those spaces and like the type of reason that they're employing when making decisions about policy, just because policy decisions extend so far and they have such real implications. So that, that was a really cool thing that I did this past week. That's awesome. And what are you excited about? Um, I'm very excited about spring break. I am, so, you know, <laughs> so Ariana and I are both um, on the cusp of graduation. And with like that comes the anxiety of securing a position once we leave academia to like actually be working professionals. So I'm, I'm planning to utilize spring break to, you know, continue my, my lifestyle of self-care, but also <laughs> to like really like commit to, you know, just we like determining like what I'm really trying to do mostly like location just because like I'm open about like the position that I'll take just because I want to return to to school I want to go to law school in like two years so I know that it's going to be you know a temporary thing whatever I get into but I also want to be happy with what I'm doing and paid adequately did you were you thinking about uh, staying in higher ed or like doing policy work or law? Like, what do you see yourself in what kind of field? I definitely want to stay within higher ed. I definitely want to assume a student facing position, mm -hmm. but not something that's DEI related just because I don't want to be siloed into that. And I want mm -hmm. to do DEI work specifically, but within the context of whatever, um, whatever department I start working at, just because I feel like, you know, DEI is like the buzz topic in higher education, but like with that, like we see all these new positions being created. But what I, I don't know, my observation of that is that like they're being created, but they don't necessarily have like cross department influence. Mm -hmm. So like it's hard, like they, like you have a lot of capacity to like and time to dedicate on identifying issues, but what impact do you really have? So I want to be strategic about like not having that be my job description just having it be like one of the facets that leads my practice mm. and like making sure that that work is present somewhere that it might not necessarily be a priority within the organization because that's where the work is most needed in my opinion mm -hmm. could you also um explain what dir and der is no so dei so diversity DEI. equity and inclusion so they're like the big buzzwords within like <laughs> higher education probably like all of academia and what it means, like the premise behind it is like making sure that the institutional spaces that we all encompass are inclusive of people, regardless of their varying identi identity markers or where they're coming from 
in terms of like their life navigation and their experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's amazing. I I definitely agree that spring break can't come any <laughs> sooner. <laughs> um, and that that's awesome that you'll be dedicating yourself to finding that right match for your for you and the work that you want to do and I mean props to you for wanting to go to law school that was that's amazing (laughs) you're gonna go back to the or business school I haven't determined like I'm gonna decide like next year which one I'm gonna like focus on and then like the next year is gonna be dedicated to like applying and studying for the test and like making sure I get into the number one school (laughs) to get that capital (laughs) to have the influence we have to scratch and like tear away yes yes (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. And I, I mean, you, um, you've highlighted a lot of things in, in your introduction. You talked about your educational trajectory. Um, and then Patricia, would you like to then um, guide us into the next section of our podcast, please? Yes. So um, the main topic for this episode, um, we're going to um, talk about the emotional and physical burden of social indoctrination of black and brown bodies within academic spaces. So for example, like how we are conditioned to be complacent, expected to um, burden more, to take on more burdens, um, appease white sentiments and white feelings, um, and subjected to depreciated experience while simultaneously contributing to more to the experience of others. So it's like learning about a lot of different things of like what we experience in academia, but we also want to talk about a little bit about like how we also experience it in other places, such as family and stuff and workforce, um, day-to-day normal life. And um, we want to talk about some of the terms and definitions. So um, if Derek, you can explain a little bit about what does indoctrination mean? Mm -hmm. So like in the context of like the social indoctrination within like, academic and social spaces that refers to the things that you have internalized to be you know truths that you hold to be you know guiding factors of like the way you navigate through spaces the way that you think the way that you react to certain stimuli or certain situations and just the overall thought processes that have been instilled in you that you don't necessarily know are guiding your interactions or your actions Mm And then um, can you explain what does complacency mean? So complacency in this context is just like being okay with the treatment that is happening, despite that treatment not being up to the standard of what a human should be subjected to or what other people are being subjected to. So complacency is basically like being okay with the depreciated experience, depreciated treatment, or like something that's less than ideal that you could advocate for yourself about or against, but you're not doing so because you're complacent and just like willing to let what's happening continue to happen. So it's like, it could also be seen like complacent about like, so if someone is saying like certain things that, you know, you know, it's going to be, you know, something that you're going to lose or don't have enough power or be conditioned to be in a um, second class you know, mm-hmm. treatment, but it's also, it could be like, I see this a lot in education where it's like complacency with systems. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people saying like, well, this is how it's always been, you know, exactly. really basically agreeing with the status quo. Yeah, exactly. Despite that status quo being like flagged as not being okay or as being oppressive or as like being the guiding point for a divergent experience for different people with different markers. 
Yeah. And especially with like complacency, I see this like in both in the, the group that you identify with, but then also the complacency of dehumanizing other people that you may like identities that you may not hold true to you. Exactly. Experience. Or that you um, necessarily don't value or that aren't valued in the context of whatever space that you're encompassing together. Exactly. And then also um, social cultural awareness. So that's just like referring to the capacity of people to understand what's going on. So how do the different like systems, like institutional policies, mindsets, internalized beliefs, identity markers all come together and interact with one another? And how are they shaped by everything that was just listed? And how does the context within like that these happenings define or like shape the trajectory of what's going to happen and like being able to like identify oh this happened because of this or these two identity markers are we are causing this person or like priming them to react to this situation in this specific way so just having the the capacity to like pinpoint it and understand it for what it is Mm -hmm. as opposed to just being complacent with whatever's happening and letting it fly over your head or not necessarily understanding it Mm -hmm. so it's like a lot about not just like socially culturally aware about like Mm -hmm. it's like putting together your positionality your historic context um and also like in the place that you're in like and Mm -hmm. who is a a key player so being aware of like the dynamics of the space that you're in so for example like if you understand all of your identities and the way that they interact with other people you have a much more socially culturally awareness of like if a policy is in place or if we're talking about a certain circumstance we understand a lot more of like how is this either the benefit or um detrimental to that person or group of people exactly and then it also goes beyond just like you because it also has to do with your ability to do that in other people and like call out or like be able to pinpoint or like even like reason like their decision making and their navigation of that space based on like where they're coming to that situation from so what you're saying is that this isn't just social justice 101 you have to like (laughs) be really versed and hyper aware of so many different things in order for you to come to that conclusion exactly and be able to understand that things are not just one dimensional and that when things convene and intersect like they take on new shape and they take on new realities and they take on new Mm. existences and that you necessarily won't be primed to understand that if you haven't had that same um situation or that same intersection that's why it's important to let people control their narrative so what you're saying is (laughs) (laughs) that the bees can morph into something completely different and if you're definitely not aware and up to date to like how this is changing you will be basically complacent to like this like performative diversity where you think you're doing something great but you really are just perpetuating the same inequities, the same social injustices and um, oppression. It just it looks nicer and it's mm-hmm. packaged to believe that it's doing greatness. Exactly. It's like it's like oppression packaged underneath the guise of progressivism and pumped but well, by good intentions. Like, oh, so it's like good vibes and good intentions. Yeah, but it's just like <laughs> what you're getting is something shitty. Like, 
it's like the same thing just like it looks just nicer and mm-hmm. the, and it's also like it, it makes a lot of like liberals and especially supposedly like progressive people to think that you know it's how we're talking about like like we're progressing into greatness and we're doing something better and so um I also want to talk about like how does this play into a world of like conditioning so what does that look like now so when like when you when people are in these situations where you have these intersecting identities and these institutional practices that define the context of like the spaces that everyone is embodying and sharing together when you're conditioned to think that certain things are okay or the treatments of certain groups of people are okay as opposed to how others are treated that's you being indoctrinated to the the status quo of society the status quo of academia the status quo of what we place value on in society who we place value on in society and you're conditioned to navigate these spaces a certain type of way you're conditioned to respond to certain types of things in a certain type of manner and to treat people and like respond to the treatment of people in certain ways so it's like the conditioning of like who if if i had to make a quick ju- judgment mm-hmm. and if i if i was um told to like make a quick decision it would be like you're conditioned to if you had to choose to between like two different groups who would you give forgiveness first who would you be able to coddle who do you like play who do you protect who do you protect who do you coddle who do you um also it's like the um who are you more willing to give patience and give those second chances second third fourth fifth like saying you know like well you know they just don't know or like those kind of like responses as opposed to, um, and then also, and 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 the other coin side of the coin is like also, who are you more quickly to just like not have patience for, not give second chances, mm-hmm. or are you quicker to just be like, well, no, it's their fault, mm-hmm. you know, they should have known better. Mm-hmm. Because I, I I think that's so salient because I feel like a lot of what's wrong with the industry is like not so much what people say or do, but what they think and like the beliefs that they hold and the the aggressions that they project subliminally or without even knowing yeah and it's like it's so normalized and it's like that's like this thing that everyone kind of like as a general like it's a guide like there's there's already a guide of like what is morally right what is morally wrong and it's like and then how do we treat the person if they fit or don't fit into um, what we think is a good student Mm -hmm. or a good faculty you know Mm -hmm. or a good individual like who do we give you know humanity to like who do we Mm -hmm. see as an actual person and who deserves that Mm -hmm. exactly and because it extends because if we like you know sub communities are like oftentimes magnifications of the greater communities that they exist within so like if we live in this fucked up society where marginalized people are treated however their bodies are not valued like we don't see them as like actual human beings we see them as like these other things that the media and like different structures have created in our minds and indoctrinated us to believe are true and like we've built up those walls and like those silos for humanity in our heads of course these thought processes are going to manifest and like shape the sub communities and whatever context that we create them so it's going to be academia it's going to be the workforce it's going to be etc and even like in our own families and communities like think about like our own family dynamics who are we quicker to just say like oh you know well you know 
she should have done this you know like mm-hmm. and and for example like I brought this example like when we were talking before recording this podcast is like even thinking about like my own family dynamic and seeing like my mom continuously telling me well you need to put your shoes in your father's place and it's like but then why does my father not put his shoes in my place mm-hmm. and also like why do I have to continuously forgive him for a lot of things that make me feel like I am less than and so it's like those conditioning where it's like I don't have the same like forgiveness or um, the same space mm-hmm. to be filled, uh, to be seen and to be understood. Exactly. Because they like they're attributing less situational capital to you. And like if we think about identities, like the layers of identities, the little cubes stack up. Like so like you know, you're you're you a part of the same you take points off. You're a part of the same family. So y'all start with the same base cube, but he is a male where you're as a woman. So you get two cubes where he gets one. So like it's obvious it's already a heavier burden on you to carry. Mm-hmm. And like on top of that, like there's the structure of like who who has like who provides income for the family like and like who has historically done that so like they're giving him more like more more value than you have so you have more stacked up against you so like it's just like the same thing in any given context right and even conditioning to like think that like my mom being another woman like you would think that she would like put her her um, position into my situation Mm -hmm. but it's like she's been conditioned to think no you have to really place your husband's feelings first before your children. And then mm-hmm. even then it's yourself. Mm-hmm. That's the last one. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, yeah. And even with that, I, I just want to add like that she even may be conditioning you to then be complacent with him. Like put yourself, like don't hurt his ego. Don't say something that will then damage that relationship. And then based on how you respond, you might just like feed into that as well and continue. And and it's like th- thinking like think about his feelings and don't like mm-hmm. by doing that you're coddling his ego mm-hmm. you're not holding him accountable like mm-hmm. those are the it, like the things that disrupt that like yeah. you mm-hmm. you speak out your truth and understanding that you may be losing some sort of like benefit you know and mm-hmm. so um i wanted to talk about the internalized inferiority and so virgie tovar um, talks about this in the You Have the Right to Remain Fat book. Um, it's on page 52. And it's talking about like, so I'm going to read this excerpt. Um, a lot of this has to do with the fact that language and meaning have become increasingly detached. Sexism has become a deeply coded set of behaviors. You can really replace sexism with any ism. Um, and then difficult to unlock if you don't know how to see them. It can take special access to education and language in order to unveil sexist behavior. Often that critical language is cast as suspect, overly intellectual, or a product of paranoid fantasy. We are at a point culturally where it requires more resources than ever to recognize oppression. You must have access to more knowledge and a more nuanced understanding of language to be able to spot its new incarnations. And because the knowledge is more specialized and not obvious to everyone, the person who points out oppression risks being cast as a professional victim. Mm-hmm. So that's what we we're talking about. It's like when you start like putting all of this into context, like you then, if you want to advocate for people, like you're the one who is like always a victim, like, oh, like, you know, pobrecita, like you mm-hmm. always have to point out like why, you know, things can't go your way. 
And if you think about like the like the amount of knowledge, like like the quote was like really speaking to the fact that you have to have basically like an encyclopedia mm-hmm. of documented instances of oppression before somebody's gonna take what they the violence that they committed against you seriously mm-hmm. or view it as like something like you know that's actually like holds merit an opinion that holds merit and like if you think about like the amount of time that it takes and like the amount of emotional energy and like emotional intelligence so like you are slighted in the moment you have to deal with the feelings of being slighted disrespected etc you also have to have the emotional intelligence to be able to pinpoint what triggered you and why it was disrespectful then you also have to have the vocabulary and capacity to be able to explain that in a way that's going to like get buy-in from the aggressor who's already going to be inclined to dismiss your reality because they already dismissed your capacity to be a human being because they committed this oppression against you. So you know that they already don't value you. Mm-hmm. So you have to explain to them, explain to someone who doesn't value you, how they hurt you, why they hurt you, why it's wrong that they hurt you and what it means that they hurt you. Like, and that's the just ridiculous. that they hurt you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like you have all this stacked up receipts and at the end, like you're trying to like pinpoint, like you're mocking all these like things, you're trying to make it. And you're also even like trying to make it so they could understand in their own mm-hmm. like worldview and they still don't believe you. And and even and even if they do, like even if they get what you're saying, like nine times out of ten, you do all of this emotional labor and they say, Okay, like I understand what you're saying, but that's not what I meant to do. <laughs> Dismissive as hell. And as if like intent undermines like the impact. Mm-hmm. Like of course. And then um talking about like inferiority, like how much it can internalize. So like inferiority at its core and this is another quote from page 48 of the book it's like inferiority of its core can simply be described as the idea that someone or some group of people aren't good enough or worthy enough at at all times without conditions or caveats when an idea becomes part of a person's worldview and personal belief system that is called internalization one of the ways that internalized inferiority manifests is a belief that you must do something in order to deserve the things you truly want Mm -hmm. so like all this conversation that we're talking about in terms of like this academic, like oppression in academia is like talking about like, you're doing all these things to try to be seen and and try to like, and I've seen other people like beg, like for others to see their humanity. And it's like, you are changing your hair look, you're changing the way that you dress and how we mentioned in this podcast about like code switching Mm -hmm. for other people to see you as like, okay, like I, I can, I can, I have something similar to you or like we're like same and then still be oppressed mm-hmm. and like you internalize it. So like once you're inferior, it's like other people like think that like it's okay to do that to you mm-hmm. and then you do it to yourself. Exactly. Because that's what happens when you're exposed to someone like constantly gaslighting you and making you question your rationale and like if what you feel is actually like something that's worth feeling or something that's rational or something that's in the real world, you, you it, it leads to like a sort of like self gaslighting where like before someone can even make you like question your thought processes, you're questioning your own thought processes, given your feelings. So you just felt something and you're already trying to like scramble to develop the words necessary to form an argument to defend your humanity. Mm-hmm. And to think also like this book um, talks a lot about how um, Virgie Tovar had to, as a 
educator and also like in her research, like to ask the right questions. Cause like mm-hmm. sometimes like what, what they mention is a lot about how you may like, just because you ask the direct question doesn't mean that you're going to get like the right, like the answer um, or to the actual root cause of like, where is this coming from for that person to mm-hmm. do that to you? And so I think for, as all of us who are like scholars and practitioners, like it's a lot about like, some people just don't understand how normalized it is and like where to pinpoint and have those vocabulary and those words and those tools to really understand the oppression. And so um, asking the right questions about like, how do you feel? Cause if you question, I, I've come across a lot of POCs that like, they're like, that doesn't, that doesn't exist. Like, what do you mean? I feel really like I have belong in this campus. And then you're just like, you don't have, like, you don't feel, like, you're othered? Like, I'm kind of confused. Like, mm-hmm. because then you think about not not everyone has access to people, like, painting the picture and illustrating mm-hmm. how does oppression look? And, uh, like, how we're mentioning, how does the beast morph? Mm-hmm. Because now it's packaged differently. And when you have student affairs, um, like your division in your campus or just in general or academic like in in academia like they're talking about like oh but we're like there's equity initiatives you know like we should be okay with that and because you know they're doing something but and they're coming with great intentions and oh my gosh you spent so much time like putting an effort to this initiative but I'm like that's not the point like we're we're putting value into certain spaces and different Mm -hmm. things that actually don't liberate marginalized and minoritized individuals from that oppression Mm -hmm, exactly like diversity equity and inclusion has been commodified to such like a disgusting extent within higher education that like any efforts at this point are just like they're misguided like in a in a lot of instances so it's just like how much how how much capacity for change is there going to be if your framework for driving the change is founded on something that's not even the root issue like you, like i feel like we are doing a lot of like work on focusing on like like all all, all of these buzzwords but like <laughs> the like how we're defining these buzzwords like who are we trying to protect with like our intention like what does it mean to be equitable like does it just mean like what does it mean like and not just that but i'm like have you asked those minoritized marginalized students what does equity mean to them mm-hmm. and it's like for me i'm like equity means reparations equity means accountability equity mm-hmm. means are you gonna buy me a house and do i have a stable you know income like are mm-hmm. you gonna supplement everything that i do not have that normally other much more privileged individuals have access to yeah, that you have set up to now be barriers to my navigating this institution that you have welcomed me with open arms with allegedly, but like you know I mean, what is you acceptance think about it. if you if you can't really like enjoy where you're at? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like think about it. Like, how many legacy students? And I'm like thinking, legacy students don't necessarily have to mean like legacy students from just Ivy League schools. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people have to think about like public legacy students Mm -hmm. and how much they get full rides like they have they get free everything Mm -hmm. and free a lot of things and access to a bunch of spaces that will even like exponentially increase their privilege Mm -hmm. and 
and even within the same spaces like it's different to be in a space and know how to navigate it than to be in a space and have no idea what this space even means mm -hmm. so well, I feel like colleges and universities do a lot of assumptions that do a lot of detriment to the students that actually like attend them and make them what they are just in terms of like from the very conception of like the students interaction with like a college or university like applications like I feel like they assume a certain level of like social capital or understanding of this process that is just not right. If like colleges are supposed to mean what they were intended to be, which is to like build up the populace, like create like opportunities and access for a more like productive society, then shouldn't we make the onboarding into these spaces like as seamless as possible to like make the access as much as possible? But that's not what we do, but we act like we do. <laughs> yes and then like uh, talking about like oppression academia like the people who undertake the emotional intelligent work like how we're talking about emotional labor like all the like education and how much we pay to like have access to like things like ethnic studies women's studies like and like all these things to help us understand our own oppression like we paid a bunch of like money we have time and then also like what does it do internally for us? Like once we understand what that looks like, like we just like have this wavelength of uh, like this like mind fuck where it's like, wow, like no, because it's you end up seeing it everywhere. Exactly, and it's so damaging because like once you understand it and once you like perceive something and are able to clock an oppressive like tactic for what it is, you can't ignore it ever again. So once you see and like understand the way that your institution is treating you that like seeps into every aspect of your experience within the institution i like to make it personal i remember like once i realized that i was navigating like harvard differently than like other classmates or that people were treating me differently like it, i just started like picking up on things so like examples of this are how we're being presented like the history of like oppression within higher education but is being presented to us in a lens of like plausible deniability so like yeah this is what happened and like it could have been like racist intentions but it could not have been like they could have been trying to maximize profits but like maximizing profits and like monetizing education is racist like in and of itself so it's just like even the lens that you're presented like material like your coursework is just like it's not conducive to an equitable experience but these are things that people are not going to question or like notice because like you don't have the situational power to really like combat that and like you're gonna feel like oh no this is just like what it is like the curriculum must have been like this for forever like if other people <laughs> had a problem with it like it would have changed if they really cared so like you you these are questions that like you build up on your own head and also like just navigating through classes when you when you when you feel like you're paying all of this money for this higher degree and you are receiving less than like your classmates just because you have like a greater level of social cultural awareness and you feel like you're tasked with the burden of increasing their awareness or like their capacity to understand things when you should be learning because this is the same class time that you're sharing and like this added level of work is not reflected in your financial aid so like why are you doing it <laughs> <laughs> or like the degrees i'm like i should have gotten like a billion certificates by that point no exactly like... <laughs> and to think about like also like you you mentioned like when you're aware in all these things that like this is happening to you and it's just like understanding how it like also like in the workplace like 
how it just like transforms everywhere where like you're pointing these things out and I think in the classes like it's really interesting how like oppression institutionalized histories context and all these things is placed as if like it happened in the past it was like these old folks that were doing it but then it's like it's never in the context of like how are you complacent to this exactly as a professor this is my positionality and this is how it continually perpetuate this way how about like we go around the circle and like talk about like all these things you know like you know like you know to think about like how you continue to do that it's because mm-hmm. it's like we we say it as if it was like like we don't no longer have to do this and it's like no you every day as an educator as a student as a person living in this world you make an active choice into participating or not participating in this Exactly. And that type of like presentation is what leads to the cognitive dissonance that allows like these fucking forces to continue and perpetuate because like it's wild that you would sit like as a master's candidate getting a degree in higher education to sit and like listen to a lecture about institutional oppression and have like your white classmates like co-sign and just say yes that's horrible like I can't believe this happened like we need to like address it but then turn around and like throw a microaggression your way in the same conversation (laughs) in the same class it's like that's what leads to that type of paradoxical thinking Mm -hmm. or just like saying like oh my gosh like uh, those comments of I, I didn't know that this was happening. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. what do you mean? Yeah. Like, first of all, if this in your master's class is the first time you're like having to confront this, like I have to, and then like turn it around and be like, can y'all like give me your own personal stories? Like, and I'm just like, why do I have to like show you someone that's like sitting right next to you for you to understand somewhat, somehow a little bit about what my experience has been? And that's, like, the flip side of indoctrination because they've been indoctrinized to, like, believe that that's, like, how they should navigate, that it's okay to ignore these realities until they're confronted and you can't ignore them anymore. Like, honestly, like, people who, like, lack the awareness that is necessary to, like, shift the oppressive, like nature of these spaces are also victims like they're victims of the indoctrination themselves they're just benefiting from it mm-hmm. mm. and then also like think about like how you're mentioning like i mean i cruised by my first semester like doing the bare minimum mm-hmm. and i'm like if i hadn't taken the like active role of going to like podcasts like reading outside material like mm-hmm. listening to other people who are like higher level of you know um social cultural awareness like like the fact that we're just doing this podcast and bringing you in and it is like none of us have a PhD Mm -hmm. exactly have been you know um compensated monetarily like can I get like a reduced you know (laughs) like uh, uh, what is it called um tuition (laughs) I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> we suppress that word we don't think about it <laughs> i was like uh, it brings back terrible memories and it's just like where is our honorary masters like where is our phd and how we mentioned before like we are not going to be probably the ones who are at the forefront at the face like we're not going to be like that poster child of like mm-hmm. all these things because we don't we don't coddle and we don't 
presented to you as like a good vibes feel you know exactly it's like the the field really rewards people who are mm-hmm. complacent with like the status quo and who are willing to perpetuate the narratives that are defined by whoever's in charge right now and doesn't really want things to change and because like the critical thinkers who are not okay with the ex- like oppressive status quo and who are really looking to restructure as opposed to you know, reinvent or like <laughs> recreate, whatever that means. It's just oh, la cosa, foaming. la cosa nada más está revolcada, es la misma chingadera, pero revolcada, you know? Sí. <laughs> A remix, like. It's the remix of the oppression, you know, it, 21st century version. This time it's personal. <laughs> <laughs> but then they put like some Latinx like vibes in it and it'd be like, ooh, exactly. diverse. Latinidad. Right, un acento and like everything's fake. Like, <laughs> Ponle ahí Daddy Yankee and, you know, like, it's going to be good. Just put him in the front, you know, like, mm-hmm. we cool with the Latinxes. Yes, get us, like, a couple white Latinos. <laughs> <laughs> and then say that, you know, reggaeton, they invented reggaeton. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, like, the same thing in academia. Like, you have all these fools, like, saying, like, oh, like, I discovered mm-hmm. this, you know, way. But it's just, like, it's co-op, but then it's, like, marketed in like a diluted version and a trash version of like mm-hmm. doesn't even look like actual equity exactly that doesn't really like facilitate any substantial change mm-hmm. it's just you know lip service <laughs> like and it's not but it's like the the students that we work with it's like mm-hmm. you constantly see the um results of all these things and it's just like you constantly have to listen to all the ways in which they are pressed and they don't have access to all these things and then you go into a classroom trying to like explain hey y'all like you need to be aware of this and this is like how this shows up and then you end up being the person who's like well you only talk about like immigration or you only talk about you know this and it's Mm -hmm. like they also rob you of other people seeing what else do you do like I don't always just do this in, mm-hmm. you know, and, and all the skills that we have to present in that job mm-hmm. no exactly it's like you have to undertake that role and like they're using that role to define you because like that's all that you can possibly be because like your existence is so shitty that that's all you have to talk about like and then we never talk about like the things that we like like on top mm-hmm. of that I'm like I've heard a bunch of my like classmates and former classmates that would just be like oh like you know I went to doing this and then mm-hmm. you're just like well guess what let me bring about how like different version like how I'm oppressed exactly it's like <laughs> who is given around. the space to actually be free and be happy and like be leisure and be themselves without having to like compensate for any type of adverse treatment because it's not people of color it's not women <laughs> it's not trans people <laughs> Who are at the forefront of like all these things, you know? And so, Derek, could you talk I about? Think... Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, um, I just wanted to make sure that I, uh, earlier you had mentioned uh, marginalized skill to less marginalized skill, and I, if you could just, I think that ties into what you were just saying. If you could just address that for a minute, for like a few seconds. Wait, come again, marginalized. Yeah. So remember, you were talking about like how there's more marginalized. Um, scale to less marginalized scale mm-hmm. so like who experiences what depending on where they yeah. uh, fall so i i always like to think of oppression as standing on a hill 
because when you're standing on a hill with your face to the ground and you're looking up at the incline, you can see everything that's ahead of you and all of the obstacles that you have to overcome, but you can't see any of the obstacles that are behind you. So where you fall in terms of like being oppressed or like having marginalized identities is kind of like standing on a hill where you can see everything that's ahead of you and that you have to deal with, but you're completely blind to the obstacles faced by people who are less like favorably positioned than you on said hill Mm -hmm. so if you are a gay man who is white like you understand the play of like being gay because that's a marginalized aspect of your identity but you would not understand struggle to the same extent that a black lesbian woman would Mm -hmm. because while you have one identity marker that's marginalized she has three And she is standing back and she has to deal with all of the obstacles that are behind you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And like oppression is one of those things that is very easy to see when it's real and ahead of you. But you almost have to be convinced when it's like something that you don't deal with or is behind you on that hill. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, thank you so much for uh, sharing that. I thought it was very important um, concept to highlight as part of this conversation and as we transition into the next uh, area topic of this discussion is um, mental health and men of color and how institutional oppression then reinforces this in communities of color. Mm-hmm. So if you could speak on that. Yeah. So like, it's been well documented, like the, the extent to which like men of color and like, latinas um suffer from like mental health like issues and it's not it's not them suffering from issues as a community it's like their lived experiences facilitating like a depreciated mental state because Mm -hmm. of all the obstacles that they constantly have to overcome Mm -hmm. within like the spaces that they occupy not just like in academia but like and navigation to any space that they're going Mm -hmm. within the context of their own homes and like what society expects from them, what their family members expect from them, Mm -hmm. what institutions expect from them. Like all of that weighs on your psyche. All of that shapes your psyche. It shapes the way that you think about yourself. It shapes the way that you think about everything in your life. It shapes the way that you think about other people and it shapes the way that you handle and navigate social situations. Mm -hmm. So when you're constantly breaking down and like beating on someone's psyche and their capacity to live like a Mm -hmm. calm leisurely happy life that's not defined primarily by their like marginalized identity and them having to compensate for the diminished capacity that people like a lot to them because of these identity markers Mm -hmm. that you, you just have to like when people have to exist like that Like, they exist, like, in a depreciated sense of what they should, what they could be treated Mm -hmm. if they didn't have those identity markers. Right. Mm -hmm. And all of that plays a very real toll on their capacities to just live and think and be happy, Mm -hmm. which, again, has all of these well-documented adverse effects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you for sharing sharing that. And now, Patricia, would you like to go into the next uh, topic area? Yeah, so um, we wanted to talk about like instances in our lives mm-hmm. and where like and then kind of debrief and put into um, like debrief and like mention like how did this like like not since s- like role play or something it's like saying like okay here's this instance and then like how can we like talk about how did this happen and how did the situation go and discuss a little bit more about like 
the educational and emotional labor that we do in these uncomfortable situations where like it's it happens so quick that once you have time to reflect you look back and you're like oh this is what happened this it's like diagnosing basically Mm -hmm. like all these different things so uh Derek could you first start uh talking about like your scenario yeah so like I've really like posited like this like an equitable like treatment within like the workplace so notice when I was describing like my um work history I was vague I didn't name any institutions one because like they're not getting any free promo from me but also (laughs) because you know it's a lot easier to be critical of something when it's like in the abstract hence why like overtly naming like racist practices and oppression in the real place has like continued because we don't name it explicitly but I digress um so my most previous like work environment was very inequitable in the way that work was distributed one and the way that like someone's capacity to have like a happy life and like the way that they were like able to able to or not have a work-life balance Mm. and what they were paid for the work that they did there were huge disparities across like race lines so like there were people like with the same title doing adverse amounts of works like undertaking a lot of projects that they would not have allocated to someone who was white and like we could just like name it so um two specific like well one the most like specific thing that jumps to mind is on my team there were two managers one was a white woman and one was a dominican man Mm. um so one of them was paid fifty five thousand dollars to be a manager of operations the other one was paid like 70 to be a manager of operations so the same exact job title same exact workload same exact like levels of work experience pretty much work work description right like but not really the amount of work that they exactly because like so like the the dominican male who was paid 55 to do the same position like he would constantly be working weekends and like the way that like the the organization was set up we have very limited space so we had to do a lot of off-site operation for our classes like the actual sessions and a lot of them took place on Saturdays the Dominican man had to work the Saturdays the white women did not so just like the division of labor, the compensation, like the amount of time that you're allowed to yourself and not having to attribute to the actual office and like your capacity to live life is is different based on what? Because like given like their characteristics, the only thing that was different was like their gender and their race. Mm-hmm. And in that situation, her race like outweighed the fact that she was a woman because, you know, we have these master traits like your master trait is like what? defines you most in terms of like the context of society how people treat you how people view you how people like navigate your space Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and it's like also like learning about like whose time is valued like exactly we allow to have a weekends off like who Mm -hmm. do we and it's like and it shows whose humanity is valued honestly exactly and who is like allowed to have like a work-life balance quote-unquote or even a life a life exactly and it's just like since we are at a like a position where it's like we can't afford to not work we can't afford to do all these things because look at how much like um the dominican man was like working for Mm -hmm. to like get 
some sort of like same respect and it's like and how much we are also complacent to that in some ways where we like since we know how to do the job better mm-hmm. like we're we're taxed that it's like oh no you know how to do it better or it's like also tokenized where it's like you do a better job you know communicating with this population or this experience and also like it speaks to like the institution the institutional status quo shaping the way that people's realities like are affected and like while experiencing the same exact context so like they're having two completely like disparate like experiences while doing the exact same role yes (laughs) i dropped my pen (laughs) and it's like also the uh, the unfair amount of labor into it like and and also like the the capacity for the institution itself to take advantage of their marginalized employees because like if they were a fair equitable employer invested in diversity and i'm saying this Mm -hmm. as a graduate (laughs) school (laughs) they would not treat their employees like this. Like they would not give this man the bare minimum that he would be willing to accept because they know the plight of people of color within the workplace. And they know that we have a lot less limited options than this white woman who they're willing to pay a lot more because she probably feels as though she has more capital to lend itself to her not having to deal with this type of treatment. And employers know that and they're taking advantage of it but they're not being called out on taking advantage of it because the systems of oppression that they've set up mm-hmm. to have employees nav- and like students navigate through these places through like a depreciated lens is working and they're not willing to advocate for themselves because they have become complacent with their experience. Mm-hmm. And it's also and, like, like, really interesting how like they use, so it's like, instead of it being a cishet, like, man white man they now have a woman so it's like also pinning like some identities against each other mm-hmm. like okay so in this instance if this man of color is like you are comparing to this white woman like mm-hmm. the, in their eyes it's like oh well it's like equitable because mm-hmm. she's a woman so it's like <laughs> using that one identity to like leverage and be like okay let's use it and justify mm-hmm. why we treat this person because he's a man and it's like like taking into this like really one-dimensional perspective of like well since he's a man he has way more power because of the role mm-hmm. but it's like but it's in particular we have to think about men of color you know it's exactly. like a whole different experience mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah so very interesting uh dynamics and just shows um an example of something real that can happen for any of us as we go into the professional world and as we are looking for uh, the next positions and um, organizations that we want to be a part of or work for and the lens and experiences that we're coming from or or with and so that we can better manage those experiences and also to look at how much like okay for some of us are like minoritized students like thinking that oh grad school is going to give us like all these opportunities but i'm like if this man has like a graduate school like degree there's still a whole set like Mm -hmm. that's not going to save you that's not going to do anything for you like this degree sure it gives you access to certain spaces and tables to be at but like it does nothing else after that also it's truncated it's also truncated access because like the access that like a minoritized person 
has once they're granted the degree is not the same amount of access that a white male will have with the same degree. And like they, their trajectories are going to be like influenced differently by that same credential. And it's like everyone like when they're like, you know, access to education will help you. And I was like, y'all don't get it twisted. You know, like think about like, yes, it will like especially for me as like as an immigrant as a first gen coming from low low income like in a family that doesn't have that many connections first of all in academia for me to be like oh let me use nepotism to get myself in you know like Mm -hmm. I don't have that so it's like sure I have this degree but it doesn't mean I'll have access to that institution or that Mm -hmm. field and so a lot of people think like oh well you know you're gonna make it I'm like I made what you know like made a lot of debt exactly you know all these like awareness of like way more awareness of like in many instances and ways that I don't have access to a lot of things Mm -hmm. that other peers have exactly it's like yeah I'm gonna make it into a job environment that oppresses me and exploits my labor (laughs) (laughs) the American dream (laughs) no but exactly and that also speaks to like the also like like we've been it's been drilled in our head in our heads to believe that like marginal advancement is like enough to justify the inequities that still persist it's like no we're gonna get diversity in this field so that you can actually be a part of these spaces that treat you like shit Mm -hmm. like it's like no like the spaces should not be treating us like this Mm -hmm. so like this little marginal like improvement is not enough and we need to stop being complacent with like marginal improvements and feeling like revolutionary change can't happen overnight it can we've just been conditioned to believe that it's not possible because it's against the interests of the oppressors Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like it's like that limited imagination of like what can actually be possible. Like thinking mm-hmm. about, and I and I seen a lot of people like justify where it's like, well, you know, from my generation, my mom's generation to mine, like my mom didn't finish high school; she only went to ninth grade, and it's like she was a you know stay at home mom and all that stuff. And then within one generation, all this like improvement, and I was just like. I mean, if you're looking at that context, sure, but I'm like, you're not also not looking at the context historically of why that has been actual, mm-hmm. like, been possible for that to happen. Exactly, like the glorification of the model minority, like, or the the exceptional minority working hard to pull themselves up from the bootstraps mm-hmm. of the struggle has been like just like ingrained in our head and like painted as this like beautiful narrative that people really think that that's what's supposed to happen mm-hmm. and like that it's okay for these inequities to even like exist. Like, it's not right that for a person of color to get into like a great school is viewed as an exception to the norm. Like the fact that it's an exception is a problem that we shouldn't be celebrating. We, sh- we should be like mad about. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, like I broke all these like barriers and also I was yeah. like, no, I didn't. Like, did you see this, the, the cuts, the, the beat ups, the, the mm-hmm. basically the new traumas like you have to experience in order to be in these spaces? Like this is a whole different thing. And you also have to, take into account how much like each one of us had to sacrifice a lot of different things to be in here mm-hmm. like yes we might have all started like believing in all this like meritocracy and all these things but then along the way we've decided like oh that's not something we want to be a part of you want to continue doing in the future mm-hmm. exactly yeah, yeah. And so moving uh, to like a different scenario. So I wanted to talk about this like thing that happened this week in one of my classes. And so 
um, talking about this like scenario in my research class. So um, what happened was that we were in class and we were going over like a focus group thing, like between like a focus group and a like a a case study, like what was the difference and all that stuff. And then this like white woman like raises her hand and asks like makes a comment about like there's like no new ideas in education and so um we were talking about this instance where we then like talked about like oh like this is this is something that like she brought up a lot of like different questions and so for me I was just sitting there like because I was in McNair and I also was in ethnic studies where we did a lot of research projects and I was in a summer research program, all these like different things where I'm like, okay, these basic research things, got it down, done. Um, and I've been looking at, if it weren't for this women's studies class that I'm taking, which is outside of my program again, mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't learn about like other ways to do research where it incorporates and in, it, in, 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 like it cites, you cite people that <laughs> talk about oppression in a very dynamic way. Like you use frameworks like not just critical race theory, not just, you know, lack crit, but you incorporate like Chicana feminist epistemology with like critical race and like all these other things where you can highlight different ways that oppression shows. Like we haven't even gotten to that. And I'm just like, this could serve so much and could do so well for all of us as, you know, future scholar practitioners. Again, this, um, and then, we made a comment in our group chat like a lot of a lot of people are like oh my gosh you know like this is like funny you know like that she's asking all these things and for uh, all of us it's like you know like we have to take a step back and like think about um and then this one one of our classmates said like hey we all need to be inclusive and we all have to like make it like welcoming space for everyone to like ask these questions and all that stuff so um before recording this like I mentioned like the scenario before and just like each one of us can like talk about like how does this scenario play into a role in terms of like perpetuating oppressions in academia so it's it's like so think about who was like asking these questions and who felt comfortable taking up this space to like ask these very rudimentary questions and this advanced level like place, knowing that like it's probably not to the benefit of the rest of their classmates. Mm-hmm. Like, like I feel like I would never do that as like a man of color. Like I'm not gonna sit there and look dumb in front of my classmates just because like I know how like that is gonna per- like that's gonna lead them to perceive me a certain type of way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just wouldn't do that. I would sit there and be quiet and like look it up on myself. But that's like also how we've been indoctrinated to like really like maneuver these spaces. Like we are so quick to put like added onus and added pressure on our own shoulders so as to like not inconvenience anyone, even though it's literally like the professor's role to like teach us. But we don't view it that way because like we navigate these spaces with a level of like humility that our counterparts don't have. Like instead of humility, they have like entitlement to these spaces entitlement to these resources but we have been conditioned to believe that these places are not for us so we don't have that same level of entitlement so we are like automatically inclined to get less from an educational experience a classroom session than somebody else who feels like no this is my space I'm gonna take everything that is deserved like you know yeah and also like not being like socially aware of like what room and space you're in Mm -hmm. like thinking about because this 
white women in particular from what she was saying like I filter it as like oh this woman just doesn't know how to interact with other like research frameworks and how to apply it with her own research mm-hmm. and then I was like if I was the professor which I was not you know like it was like thinking about like okay like let's put this conversation let's have it on a one-on-one basis or even ask the, the whole class does anyone else have that similar question mm-hmm. or can we you know deal with this on a one-to-one basis afterwards mm-hmm. in a different time mm-hmm. and like that's not a big reach for professors to do professors do it all the time and like me listening to this story i can't help but wonder had that situation been different had this woman not been a white woman mm-hmm. because like had she would had had she would even have been like allotted the same amount of like tender tenderness and care and like individual like attention in the whole classroom setting mm-hmm. and the compassion of like oh my gosh like if you know I also have either been in that situation mm-hmm. where you know I felt dumb and like I didn't know how to use certain things but did you see me raise my hand ever like no like there's a thing that I'm like I either look up this is a kind of like in like emotional and like labor that we all do mm-hmm. when we are minority students where we do as much as we can to look it up, do all this like outside homework just to somehow like know how to frame our questions and then ask it, but on a one-on-one individual basis, mm-hmm. if we even do that, if we even do that. And like, why, like think about like why we like, why our thought process is to even do that is to like really make the experience better for other people. Like for, it could be a better experience for the professor. It's a better experience for the other classmates who I'm not taking up their time. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why are we like so conditioned to like output all of this empathy that's not reciprocated to us especially when like we don't like not only do we not get empathy we don't even get treated like we're deserving of empathy because we're not even real people like and we deserve that like extra help to catch Mm -hmm. us up to speed with the rest of the class like Mm -hmm. and that's the thing that really boggles my mind where i'm like how can i also be like compassionate to this person but also understand that i'm like i have had to have so many different people in my life say you have to be patient you Mm -hmm. have to just wait that everyone just fucking sees you as a human being in order for you to like be able to live your best life you know like while treat while people are treating you like shit like you have to be sit there and be patient and be like understanding of why they're treating you like shit when they can't even understand that they're treating you like shit (laughs) and also like for me this hyper awareness that i have it's like and this is the thing that I've done and I had to catch myself in like this ethical dilemma that I have where it's like, I notice that a lot of my classmates have like this help or just don't understand the concepts and I'm there tutoring them. I'm there mentoring in their research project. I'm there like giving all these things. And I even had like a, I was like texting my friends and I was just like, wait a second, you know, I gave enough community service for today of like, you know, like helping all these things and putting into place things that the institution should be doing mm-hmm. that I'm not getting compensated or recognized for doing all these things. Like, why do we have to keep advising our own peers as opposed to the program, the professors, mm-hmm. the institution, the research division, uh, the graduate division, like coming in and supplementing that work for us? It's because institutions refuse for whatever reason to like take an investment in like their human capital and they don't want like for whatever reason for minoritized people to have like a nice experience within their institutions like that's what it sounds like as crazy as it sounds to say it Mm -hmm. explicitly like that's 
really the paint the the picture that's being painted by like that institutional actions that refuse to like take into account like if there's one thing that I have learned in the <laughs> like the, my time at Harvard studying higher education is that every single problem within higher education is man-made and has been persisting for at least 50 years. So if we wanted to really stop them, we could have. But institutions been co-signed. Do and been co-signed by other people and from other exactly. groups. Exactly. So because like we know that like change is not happening at the institutional level. We know that if we really want anything to happen, we have to pick up that burden ourselves. And it's not fair, but... The thing is, everyone knows that it's not fair mm-hmm. and everyone knows that it's happening. Mm-hmm. But like institutions refuse mm-hmm. to take a stance and really like facilitate productive change or productive policy to enable this to stop. And also like think about like for me, like the, the fact that I have to be put in a situation, this like really awkward situation where I feel like should I because I understand what it feels like to have had help you know, or being tutored Mm -hmm. or being guided by other people and how much it made a difference in my life. But it's also, I have to think about also stepping out and like not giving this information. It's like, it's not that I don't want to give it, but I just give it so much to the actual students. I already like have, like that's my Mm -hmm. actual role to do. Like when do I get to turn off that hat and like just be a student? And so far, like not learning a lot and it's just like and it sucks because I'm like I want to help my students but they don't see what I have to do on a daily basis everywhere else Mm -hmm. yeah and like you're not gonna have that opportunity until like institutions (laughs) like stop their bullshit like honestly like institutions need to take like a definitive stance and like really stand for something instead of just providing lip service on diversity and equity and like implementing policies that are gonna yield us marginal benefits. Like if you want your like the people who make up your institution to feel good about the institution, to feel good about their work, to feel good about their lives, you need to make the investment. And it has to be a conscious and explicit investment in disrupting the status quo. And that's and also something like- that we haven't seen in like the a large and enough like capacity to really be substantial. And also, like, think about, like, how much, like, advising things and stuff like that. Like, other people get money to pay for consulting. Like, mm-hmm. all these, like, research things that I've been, at, like, telling, I'm like, this is a consultation fee like, mm-hmm. <laughs> that I could have paid my no. tuition with. <laughs> no, exactly. So, from here on out, it's, like, taking that balance and for all of us to think about in what ways, like, are we doing this extra labor that I'm like, we're not getting compensated, we get resentful for, and then we mm-hmm. don't end up actually having that empathy and like care for the actual students that we should be doing all this work for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. To our capacity. Yeah, exactly. So um, so now we're going to go into our last topic, and that's basically coming up with solutions, sharing uh, possible things that people can do moving forward as we... Um, continue to go into these spaces where we're not um, represented, where we're not being valued. Um, and what are some advice or some ideas for like possible solutions to address these things? Yeah, so like what we were talking about, like we're already doing this work. We're already undertaking this emotional labor. What we need to do is be strategic and like, we need to be strategic and intentional about like mm-hmm. our approach to doing it. So we need to actually, like, transfer, like, all of our emotional labor and, like, 
um added work and like self-induced like empathy like into like actual policy into actual uh, agenda items into actual initiatives within the workplace that one are well documented to like take into account the actual the voices of the people that we're trying to like help and the injustices that are actually felt that we're trying to address mm-hmm. um one idea that i developed as a part of my ethnic studies course actually like last last term was the idea of a critical employee research group so like um employee research groups um exist like within the business sector um and what they are, they're basically like adult affinity groups within the workplace. So they bring together people with minor, minoritized like identity markers. So they have like black ERGs, Latinx ERGs, women ERGs, women of color ERGs, LGBTQ, etc. And it's basically a place for people like who might be experiencing like adverse realities within the context of the work place to come together and discuss like their grievances they have they they can put on panels they have guest speakers come talk about like very like pertinent topics affecting that identity group within the workplace and beyond Mm -hmm. so my idea was to add a critical component to these um employee research groups and make them critical employee research groups or surge because they're going to surge new life into the institution (laughs) it's not trademark yet but it's coming soon um (laughs) And basically, like, what, like, they would do is, like, they would do all of the functions of an employee research group, like, bring people together, like, allow them to, like, air their grievances, allow them to, like, build a community of solidarity within the workplace, and, like, discuss the pain points that they're having. But the critical component would be, like, critical change. So they would need to be institutionally backed. So the institution would sponsor, like, the HR departments of, like, whatever institution would create these employee research groups, these critical employee research groups, and, like, um, allow individuals across various, like, departments to be a part of them so that they, one, can, like, build community. Because oftentimes, as, like, an administrator, I can speak to that just because that's, like, the context that I'm familiar with. Like, you're very siloed within your department. Oftentimes, if you're a person of color within a department in higher education, you're the only one within that department, mm-hmm. unless you work in diversity, equity, inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> maybe, they, maybe. There might be no, some white women, like, taking charge of that, though. <laughs> no, yeah, she, she, she's the director. You're, you're the manager. <laughs> <laughs> you just see. <laughs> but oftentimes like that can lead for to you for, to you feel like you're just like an island within this organization and like a lot of times like it, you end up doing a lot of like the emotional work to make sure that your students are supported within these marginalized contexts but nobody's really supporting you mm-hmm. at all because the institution is already built upon these oppressive structures so what these critical employee research groups would do it would allow people to like air out these grievances, build community, Mm -hmm. and then address the actual grievances in an institutional way. So identify, we all feel like this, Mm -hmm. and this, this, like, existence is not okay. What can we change at the policy level within the institution to, like, ameliorate the effects or completely reduce them of, like, what we're feeling? So it's really about, like, the employees within the institutions driving institutional change and strategic change being driven at the like 
the 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 worker level and not at the director level where it's a lot easier for them to be less invested in the oppression taking place Mm -hmm. and also like less inclined to actually understand the oppression taking place and how it feels because they have the situational capital or the institutional capital to transcend that Mm -hmm. so it's really interesting because it's like you we all like in some ways like vent about all these things that we have but it like goes nowhere you know and so it's just like really interesting how this like critical employer research group really is about like having a space but it's also like it's going to be institutionalized where it's like okay these are things that are Mm -hmm. happening that a lot of different people are experiencing in different places which is really interesting because in academia like they have a bunch of committees and a bunch of task force but they don't actually have one usually about this specific thing Mm -hmm. where I'm like if I'm thinking about like all these initiatives all these things that if they're talking about like diversity inclusion how do we either either like um uh, access retain graduate either like have them actually be on this campus and stuff like that there's no task force or committees or something that talk about before we even have the student come in or a new employer a new Mm -hmm a faculty member, what are some of the things that we need to do to actually make this a much more welcoming space and a place that can be sustainable for them to actually stay? Because Mm -hmm. think about the turnover rate that Mm -hmm. a bunch of different departments Mm -hmm. have. No one's questioning that at a point where we can actually have an institutional change for it. They're not questioning it because they don't need to question it. They know that they're treating their employees wrong. (laughs) Like They know that that (laughs) it's not right. They just don't have the incentive to, like, change it because, again, like, we live in this, like, society that's drawn to the explicit that, like, needs things to be overt in order for them to be respected. And because oppression is so covert in the way that it manifests in the way and, like, it's so plausibly deniable in the sense that, like, you have to, like, have this, like, encyclopedia in order to explain to someone (laughs) why they have you fucked up. Like, it's just, like, it's going to continue because, like, nobody's calling them out. So, like, this is a way to, like, one, call them out, two, make it a formal call out, and three, make it, like, community-led. So it's not an outside entity calling you out. It's the actual workers that make up the institution calling it out as being a depreciative, like, entity that is in need of reform. And also, like, I feel like that type of, like, that type of, like overt like calling out is what we need because like we need to hold people accountable and the only way that people are going to be held accountable is if we're explicit about calling out the injustices that they perpetrate yeah and not letting all of this like grievances just be informal but Mm -hmm. it's also like also not go to the point where it has to be publicly shamed through a either a whistleblower or a newspaper or something for Mm -hmm. it to like be addressed exactly Like, this is an opportunity for institutions to show that they really care, for institutions to show that they value their employees' experiences and they value their employees' voice, as opposed to just being complacent and oppressing and taking advantage of them. That's amazing. Like, just how simple some of these solutions can be, Mm -hmm. yet how complex it actually is for people to get to that point of understanding Mm -hmm. that there actually, one, needs to be an actual change happening. It has to be transformative and also has to center 
the people that you keep, you know, othering. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, the, the change and the solutions can be implemented really quick. It's just the fact that a lot of people don't understand all of this that we're talking mm-hmm. about to that level. Precisely. So they, they, they're, again, like they haven't, they haven't transcended the indoctrination. So they're just complacent. <laughs> like, yeah. They haven't evolved to this like new hyper awareness of mm-hmm. like looking at it all. Like, I mean, think about how all the three of us had to become expert sociologists, expert like um, leadership, like dynamics and business managers. And mm-hmm. not on just that, but it's like be really good educators, researchers. On top of that, be tokenized and set boundaries, have great mental health because you mm. can't do anything without that. Exactly. <laughs> Despite everything that's adversely affecting our mental health. Like. Mm-hmm. On a daily basis, how we get attacked on a, on a, like, macro level and also on an individual level the little battles that we have like we're just out here being superhuman which is like also a part of the dehumanization dehumanization that we also experience where it's like because we other people think that we can take up so much yet Mm -hmm. i'm like i don't see no like degree compensation where's like again like our honorary mba (laughs) like hello (laughs) it's just expected of us in the end exactly yeah so so as we conclude our, our uh, third episode, um, we're just excited to for such a fruitful conversation and uh, such great points by everyone and um, such a much, much needed conversation to like just share and have and like point out these explicit things. Which is interesting because we come in here like wanted to be something light and something <laughs> like we would all laugh about and then yet we had a huge nerdy conversation <laughs> about the things that were like tired about <laughs> it's real it's real and we experience it i mean get look at our different backgrounds and um and just like how we've all been um victims of all of this you know like and and we still have to continue to survive and thrive and do a million of other things exactly. and then not only are we victims of but we're like we're labeled as professional victims mm-hmm. which is like, it's like the blame is deferred to someone else right mm-hmm. so yeah it's amazing. Maybe hopefully in the next episode we have something lighthearted with the three of us. <laughs> yes. Again, part two. <laughs> it would have to be a part two series. <laughs> Bring you back on that way because everyone mentioned everyone mentioned how like funny you were. <laughs> and that's why they wanted you in the podcast. And I was like, okay, we need to give you a platform too. <laughs> and he delivered. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. It was my first time actually meeting Derek. So, like, <laughs> hello. <laughs> it was great. Lifelong friends. Moving forward. Right. I've known you forever already. <laughs> <laughs> so, Patricia, uh, uh, just as we are closing, I just want to make sure we have some space for any announcements uh, that we'd like to share um, from any of us. Uh, anything that's upcoming. Just want to make sure we highlight any um conferences events uh projects that are coming that we'd like to highlight i don't i don't have anything so far no i don't have anything to highlight either but if i have a last word i would love to let the listeners know that it's better to be aware and angry than complacent and oppressed yes Yes, yes. And sad. Sad in your own little isolated mm-hmm. place where it goes nowhere. <laughs> Period. And always remember that you're a bad bitch first and a student <laughs> worker ETC second. 
for real like setting those boundaries is like really important and like knowing like what your limits are and you know setting the limit a little bit higher (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. exactly and just knowing that it's not like an individualistic isolated experience but that a lot of us uh, who are in these different fields and spaces and positions are experiencing similar things. We just don't realize that other people either have gone through it before or are, are going through it now. And it's like, we continue to tackle these uh, experiences on our own without, you know, realizing that there's maybe a better approach. Mm-hmm. And if only we could connect with other people who ha- could give us some advice or best practices of how to like position ourselves into a more empowering place that then can you know not only stop these things from continuing to happen but also empower us to like speak up and like be respected for who we are yeah and also like we shouldn't take the task of doing undoing 500 years of colonial Mm -hmm. oppression but Mm -hmm. also that doesn't give an excuse uh you know to like not do something about it you know to our actual capacities that we do have exactly Mm -hmm. So yeah, so thank you so much, everyone, for your time. I am now going to provide you all with information as to where you can continue to uh, stay in touch with us. So for all of our listeners, you can email us at chicanacodeswitchers at gmail.com and send us your POC business conference and event shout outs and listener listener letters. Uh, You could also record a listener message on Anchor app and we could include in our future episodes. Um, also follow us on Instagram, Chicana Code Switchers, and Twitter, uh, X Code Switchers. And if you want to support this podcast, you can uh, Venmo us at Chicana Code Switchers, and that will allow us to continue providing this podcast with unlimited unlimited time. Um, given you know, for example, this podcast took a little longer. But it was fruitful and productive, and we hope that uh, ultimately will help someone out there um, that's listening to continue this work and to not give up and to feel empowered and like hear from um, real experiences. So again, thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode. And until next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.